0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, is out this week. The perthonotary wobbler is a small songbird of the New World Wobbler family. For many years, the Jackson Audubon Society has maintained nesting box trails for these birds. They can also be seen around the Lafleur's Bluff and the Fanny Cook Natural Area. Today, we'll have birding enthusiast Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society to talk about the birds and their migration to the nesting sites. You can join the conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one Six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to animals at mpbonline dot org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, uh, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So, good morning, Libby. Hope you're doing well this
2: morning. Good morning. Yes, I'm
1: having a good morning. um <clears throat> I, I heard you talk to Java before the show started about these birds and that they're quite stunning. I just wish they had an easier name to pronounce, because I think I'm going to stumble over that for the entire hour.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I'll give you one. The older name was Golden Swamp Warbler. And when some of the old timers taught me that, I've I've been lucky enough to watch them for 40 years here on the land that 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 we live on and um so us we call them the golden swamp warblers because it's easier to say and it tells you exactly what they are (laughs) they're golden and they live in swampy areas but they are um they're not shy of people which you might expect because you know they're what i guess birders would call a good bird they're not terribly common, but uh, we're lucky that they're common here where we live and um, I was telling Java this morning, if I sit in the porch swing, the male uh, prothonotary or golden swamp warbler likes to perch on the chains of the swing so he will sit there and fuss and fuss at me until I change chairs. I don't have to go in the house <laughs> but I've got to either lay down in the hammock or change chairs because he wants to be able to light on the, the um, porch chain. And he's not at all shy about telling me that. He'll get right in my face.
1: So are they so the ones that uh, are singing uh, now?
2: Um I don't hear them singing right now, no. I'm on the other side of the house because I'm watching our figs have become ripe, and I don't know how many I'm going to get to eat because the birds are going crazy over <laughs> them. But the most interesting thing this morning is that the Phoebes are catching the fruit flies that are attracted to the fruit at the top of the tree that has already gotten ripe. Or if a cardinal will kind of half eat a fig, and then what's left is very attractive to the fruit flies. And since I really dislike the fruit flies being on there, I'm glad the Phoebes have found the fruit flies this morning, and they're hovering around and eating them. So I've moved to the back of the house so I can watch the show back here.
1: So the Phoebes is that? What is that?
2: That is a little. It's a it's a fly catching or bird, and they're pretty little bird. They have a pretty stand, and um, they say their name. They say Phoebe, Phoebe, <laughs> and uh, they nest on the back of our house. They make a clay, dirt dauber looking nest that that sticks to the to the house we had a little problem this year when we had our house painted and cleaned they took down the old nest so when the phoebes came back they were just frantic they went to the places that they usually nest and they were gone and um uh, we were advised that we could put a little shelf up there so paul made some little shelves pretty quick on each side of the house and sure enough the phoebes did nest on the shelves so we've had babies hatching and um, they're fun to watch because they get a, like um, he's got a tomato cage out here that they can light on. And there's a bird feeder. And they set in plain view, because I guess they need to be free and quick. So the minute they see an insect they like going by, they zoom around and they do some acrobatics to catch those insects. They're They're really fun to watch.
1: Well, with most creatures, anything that eats insects, I think we can all be happy to have around, that's for sure. we yes. got, uh, got a couple of emails here, and this first one uh, says, from time to time, we've seen different kinds of turtles laying eggs on our property. How can we do something to protect the nest from nighttime predators? If we don't observe the egg laying, we don't find a nest until the next day when something has dug it up, and all we find is a scattering of eggshells. It's wonderful that we have turtles, since most nests seems to get destroyed. So any advice that you could give uh, would be appreciated.
2: And she's right. You know, nature has to have abundance when it comes to laying eggs. Birds have the problem, and so too reptiles, of everything likes to eat the eggs. So luckily, there's usually enough of a balance. But if you're in a place where dogs or coyotes or raccoons or whatever I think, I'm not sure if a possum will dig up an egg or not, but they might. But anyway, um, because they eat chicken eggs, so they probably would eat turtle eggs. Um, Using something like uh, a heavy wire or a tomato cage, anything like that, that you could put over it that's sturdy enough, you're going to keep those mammals out. But they're all pretty strong. And if it's a dog, that's a really hard thing. Keeping dogs away from them, is going to be a problem. But if it's something smaller, I would say try using hardware cloth or chicken wire or a tomato cage. You can buy those. Anything like that to put over the nest and um, give those little turtles time.
1: All right. Um, here's another turtle question. Uh, it says once at Longwood and Natchez, I saw a turtle that was somewhere between 10 and 15 inches in diameter. How big can they get, and do you have any sort of guess as to what type of turtle this might be? That's not a whole lot of information to go on.
2: Yeah, we'd need a little more information because, yeah, we have a good many turtles that can get that big. Um, Water turtles, of course, Uh, the snappers can both get that big. That's a pretty big common snapper to be 10 inches, but uh, um, uh, a common slider or a chicken turtle, they get that big pretty easily and they're pretty common to see around so my guess is that that it's one of those turtles it's too big for a box turtle or that would be yeah i don't think any of our box turtles can get nearly that big i know they couldn't and um longwood is not where you would probably see a gopher of course a gopher tortoise can be that big but yeah we would need to know what type of turtle to have an idea but there are several species that could be 10 inches
1: all right and again uh, if uh, ever you see something that you're curious about if you can snap a quick photo and send an email in it always helps for identification purposes uh, to have that information to go on Uh, we always give it our best shot but sometimes it's it's just sort of a shot in the dark Yeah, uh, Libby, the uh, museum is now open, and I think uh, that we had mentioned on previous shows that it's uh, sort of by appointment only. Have you heard anything about how their reopening is going?
2: I heard they have um, a pretty steady stream of visitors, but that it's not too crowded. I haven't been yet, and I was thinking I would come in the next few days because I want to see the Monster Fish exhibit. That goes along with one of the TV shows, and it's not something that I've been watching, but uh, I know people that like to watch it a lot. There's a, a show about monster river fish. And this is an exhibit that goes kind of along with that TV show or inspired by the TV show. And it's models of the great big fish and information about the fish and some activities that um, children can do or adults too that um, teach you more about these large fish.
1: Uh, and as I mentioned, I think they are open, but uh, they folks need to call in advance for an appointment uh, to a time to, to tour the museum. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's my understanding. Is that uh, you can buy a ticket online, I think, or you can just call and they'll give you um, a time to show up. And that way, you don't, you know, you don't want to have to wait too long in case it is crowded. But yeah. so far, I, they've not had big crowds, so you should be okay getting up there.
1: And that's a good thing. And
2: right, oh, and I was just going to say, if you want to venture out on the trails, even though it's hot, the yellow crowned night herons are nesting on um, the trail that's, um, it's closest over to the floors Bluff. So you would really want to park over on that side of the park. And, um... Oh gosh, I don't know. Any anybody there at the park could tell you where the the yellow-crowned night-herons are, but you can go in there and the babies are in the nest right now, but you can especially if you bring your binoculars, you'll be able to get a good look at them. All right. And then drive back around on the other side to go to the museum.
1: And Java, you you were telling me something. mississippimuseums.org is the site for the Okay. More information on the museum, uh, the Museum of Natural Science. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead to take our first break this hour. When we get back, uh, we'll begin our discussion on the Golden Swamp Warbler and other birds with our birding enthusiast Charlie Pfeiffer. So stay tuned. If you want to join the show and tell us about your brush with nature, or if you've got a bird question this morning, the number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672 You can email the show Send it to animals at mpbonline.org Stay tuned, we'll be back with more after this Listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And this segment, we're going to welcome to the show a new guest, bird enthusiast, uh, Charlie Pfeiffer. Uh, So, Charlie, thanks for joining us on the show today. As I mentioned, you're a first-time guest, so if you would tell us a little bit about your background.
3: Well, um, I'm a uh, zookeeper by profession, but a birder and bird conservationist. Uh, i'm on the, a member of the Jackson Audubon Society. Uh, I'm on the board of the Louisiana Wildlife Federation and the Orleans Audubon Society. and uh, prothonotary warblers has always been a uh, particular interest of mine.
1: What about birding? Has that been a lifelong interest of yours?
3: It has. Uh, I, th- I think most of us that uh, like nature and animals and birds. Uh, start off as a start start off at, at a young age and uh, only grows as you uh, go through your life and uh, i I love seeing the birds in Mississippi traveling around, seeing the birds of uh, other states and even other countries. so my interest only grows.
1: Uh, and I'm not sure if you heard the first part of the show, but Libby gave me an out, uh, and we're gonna I'm I'm gonna call it the Golden Swamp Warbler simply because that's a little bit easier for me to pronounce. Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about primarily uh, during the hour. And actually, we got an email, and so I thought maybe you and Libby could both uh, comment on this one. Uh, it says, if a female Golden Swamp Warbler sits on her eggs for 12 to 14 days, how long is the hatchling to fledgling process? Would she feed nestlings for an additional 14 days or so? Some old texts say ten to eleven days before young birds leave the nest, but that seems an abbreviated adolescent phase so uh, Charlie uh, if you would maybe give us some thoughts on that email
3: well the the incubation is twelve to fourteen days, and then they stay in the nest for uh, roughly ten to eleven days and and then when they leave the nest actually the the parents uh, continue to take care of them for a while by by feeding and attending to them for as much as 35 days afterwards, the uh, the, the female the female um, is the only one that actually incubates, uh, but both parents feed the young.
1: All right, um, tell us uh, if you would if describe the the uh, and I'll try to say it again: prothonotary wobbler.
3: Uh, to describe the prothonotary?
1: Yeah, w- what do they look like? Size, that sort of thing.
3: Right. Well, it's, it's a beautiful yellow bird, golden bird, and we're lucky to have them here in Mississippi. It's a very charismatic species. Uh, where they're found, they're they're actually very easy to see. They're not shy at all, but they're roughly uh, five inches long. Uh, it's a small bird, less than an ounce in size. Uh, the males, males are the prettiest of the two, as is so often the case, but not always through all birds, but the male is a beautiful golden color. The female, more of a yellowish green, but not bad. Uh, attractive as well. And they're s- totally associated with, uh, with uh, water and forest. Like they especially love swampy forest or at uh, least uh, forest near lakes or bodies of water and forest are always involved with the species. It's a habitat specialist.
1: What do you mean by that? It's a habitat specialist.
3: Um, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find them anywhere else other than a forest, forested swamp or a forested, forest near a lake or a forested slough or some, something like that. Uh, there, obviously, some birds are desert specialists. Some birds live in uh, upland forests. Uh, some birds are actually very uh, across the board in what they like as far as habitat like blue jays carolina brands they uh, exist over a wide range including urban habitats but uh, prothonotaries need this this wet forest kind of habitat
1: we're on creature Comforts today visiting with bird enthusiast charlie pfeiffer if you have a question about birds or about the prothonotary warbler in uh, uh, for, uh, in you can give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline dot org. So, Charlie, I've stumbled over the name a couple of times. Do we? Do you know how they got the name Protonitary?
3: Yes, uh, prothonotary comes from uh, the yellow robes worn by by Catholic clerks.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm not sure if they still do, but at least at one time. Uh, Catholic Catholic clerks were yellow robes, so when Europeans came to North America and saw protonitary warblers, they they uh, associated the yellow with protonitary.
1: And so, uh, what parts of uh, the state you said the, the the forested areas are their habitat? So, are they pretty much distributed through through most of Mississippi?
3: Um, well, ten, ten, 10 percent of the breeding population. In the United States, which is almost almost entirely where they breed, there may be a very, very few in Canada, and ten percent is, is actually nesting in Mississippi, uh, a little more than that in Louisiana. But whatever, wherever there is uh, sufficient habitat, this kind of uh, wetland forest, you're, you're pretty likely to see them, uh, like in Pascagoula, for example uh that area the wetland forest there uh but when when the habitat is just wrong if it's up, upland forest uh that's just not their thing it's always forest plus plus water
1: we mentioned uh, at the top of the show uh the nesting project started by the Jackson Audubon Society uh if you would uh, tell us about that
3: well the predatory warbler nest box project is is the signature conservation project of Jackson audubon it, it was started in in two thousand Dipper anding a prominent uh, audubon uh, member uh, propelled this project forward as long uh, along with Mary stripling who um, also gave impetus to this program over the years and um, it, it, when the project first started or actually through the years it's been more of a more of a uh, maintenance project. But starting last year, Jackson Audubon decided to look at it as a monitoring project as well. So he wanted to quantify what uh what success we were having. And as it turns out this the uh the Bluff State Park turns out to be in a really important breeding site for um warblers. Uh, we we sent some of our data to Eric Johnson in Audubon, Louisiana, to print some of our numbers, and uh, our pr- productivity is competitive, rivals anything in Louisiana, which is probably the number one state for prothonotary warblers.
1: So, you know, I know that uh, different birds like different sorts of nesting cavities and that sort of thing. What, what does the nesting box for the prothonotaries look like?
3: So, roughly, uh, a nest box for prothonotaries would be Five by five on the bottom, and it doesn't have to be to the exact inch or anything. But five by five on the bottom, six feet tall. But here's the important part: the one and a quarter inch entrance hole. That that keeps out cowbirds, which is a uh, a uh, brood parasite. They nest their they lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and then leave the the raising of their chicks to other birds. Um also, also uh, even though this is a fine bird that we want to produce many of, we also, if the box, the box hole is too big, we've actually had a bluebird come into the box and, and um, lay eggs in, in our program at uh, LaFleur's Bluff. So if you keep to one and a quarter inches, it excludes most of the birds you want to keep out.
1: We've got a caller on the line, uh, so let's uh, bring that call into the conversation. And it's uh, Nancy calling in from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air with us. Go ahead.
4: Good morning. Um, I, I'm a hummingbird fan, and I feed, I put out five hummingbird feeders every year, and normally have lots and lots of hummingbirds. But this year, I did not see a single one. And over the years, you know, I don't see indigo buntings or gold pinches anymore. Um, there used to be a lot of red headed woodpeckers in my neighborhood that I don't see. I don't even see blue jays much anymore. And I'm I'm wondering what's happening.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. That's sad that you're losing your birds. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there is an answer if you look the neighborhood if you kind of go far enough around have the woods gradually been cut back has there been more development in the area any kind of a land use change
4: nothing has Um, has changed uh I just don't I mean not only at my home do I not see these birds I, I don't see them anywhere yeah, you know, there used to be lots well, of indigo, indigo buntings and goldfinches that would come through. Uh, and I mm-hmm. haven't seen a goldfinch in, I don't know, three or four years.
2: <clears throat> They're certainly around. And now, when you say that, um, all populations, well, most bird populations are decreasing to some extent. But, um... Those birds you're mentioning are still plentiful here at my place, except I, I had painted buntings when I first moved out here, and I, I don't anymore, but uh-huh. I know exactly what has changed. Uh, land that had been an open field where they like to nest has now closed in with trees, and so they're not there anymore. Uh-huh. But usually you can find an answer because the bird populations are decreasing for a reason, and those reasons manifest themselves You know, in each of the habitats where the birds are are leaving, there are still lots of indigo buntings around. And I have a good many hummingbirds this year. I know Troy said he's got a lot on his uh, feeders, but I'm sorry you don't. Um, And again, I guess I have to go back to you (laughs) probably like if you went on Google Earth and you looked at the bigger picture of your neighborhood and did that through time, I think you would see Mm -hmm. some changes. And um, I I guess one of the things I would encourage you to do, if you're able to, uh, get out to LaFleur's Bluff. There's still lots of birds there. You can see those prothonotaries that we're talking about pretty easily, Uh the yellow-crowned night herons that I mentioned. There's a a large diversity of birds in that area. And uh, do you live here in the Jackson area? I live in Hattiesburg. And Hattiesburg. Oh okay, yeah, now there uh-huh. are lots of birds. Hattiesburg is a real birdie place. Uh, well. But it again you need to get uh, kind of out of town. Uh-huh.
4: And I live in the sort of original part of of Hattiesburg and you know, neighborhood. And mm-hmm. there hasn't really been
2: any change there. Um I don't There's know. been I, steady I, development. I, there in Hattiesburg, it's certainly grown a lot more than when I lived there 40 years ago. <laughs> it has, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long have I guess how what span of time have you seen this change?
4: Um, well, even last year I had lots of hummingbirds, um, but this year I, I did not see. I, I take that back, I saw one fly through the yard. But that's mm-hmm. the only one I saw um, or that I've seen the whole year. Now, sometimes they, some years when I put feeders out, they kind of, a few of them hang around all summer. Um, yeah. But yeah. United, I don't know if it's the temperature here. That's, I don't
2: know. Well, don't give up. I hope maybe you'll have a good fall <laughs> migration with hummingbirds. I know some people that have very few all summer, but during fall migration, they are covered up with their feeders. So, keep your feeders out, and I hope that your hummers come back.
4: When is the best time to put the feeders out in the fall?
2: Uh, you mean to to ta- bring them in? or to-
4: Well... Well, I guess I can just leave them up all summer.
2: huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you do well, need to is, leave them up all summer is and, and definitely into the fall. I I usually will leave one feeder up in the winter just with the hopes that I'll attract one of those mm-hmm. uh, strange little birds that might be still out there. Because a good yeah. many people manage to have some winter hummingbirds, but mm-hmm. um, they're not nearly as plentiful as the ruby throats that are here during yeah. the summer months.
4: When, do, um, the, when does the fall migration
2: get cranked up? It'll start, you know, it varies a lot with different um, species, but, you know, starting in well, August, you'll see road. things moving. Yeah. yeah. So definitely August, September, definitely have those feeders out for them.
4: Okay. Okay. Well, I won't lose hope. <laughs> okay. Thanks for calling
2: <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thanks, Nancy. We appreciate your phone call. It's time for another break on Creature Comforts. When we get back, we'll continue uh, talking warblers with our guest Charlie Pfeiffer. They have nesting boxes, trails maintained by the Jackson Audubon Society. We'll tell you how you can get involved after the break. So stay tuned. Still time for you to join the show with a phone call as well. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. 672 You can email the show Send it to animals at org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield. And today we're visiting with our guest, a birding enthusiast and a volunteer with the Jackson Audubon Society. It's Charlie Pfeiffer. And we're talking about prothonotary wobblers, also known as the Golden Swamp Wobbler. Uh, So, Charlie, we've been talking about uh, the project that the Jackson Audubon Society does of the nesting boxes put up in the LaFleur's Bluff area. Um, and it's a, a box check program. And as you mentioned, I think it's, it's a bit of monitoring now. So uh, once the, the nesting boxes were established, now members go back and sort of, like, check on the progress, I guess?
3: That's right. We do, we, we do a once-a-week check, and we take down the data, and then uh, we'll submit it to uh, Eric, Eric Johnson at Audubon, Louisiana, and see what kind of trends we have. But w- I think we've shown that it, it's uh, a very important site for, for proponentary warbler breeding.
1: So, what sort of data do you collect uh, when you visit the boxes?
3: Uh, we look at eggs, chicks, uh, when they're laid, when the chicks fledge, um, and that sort of thing. Basically, um, if the parents the parents are attending and present, at, and present, uh, that tells us if the box is active or not. And it usually is
1: if there's eggs and chicks. How long have the boxes uh, been uh, put up?
3: Well, uh, the first ones were put up in the year 2000, so it's a really long-going project. Uh, Monitoring uh, really started last year. We we wanted to find out uh, how successful the project actually was, and I think we were demonstrating that it actually is very successful.
1: Uh, are you gleaning any sort of new information about uh, the behavior or information about the birds?
3: Well, the, the most most important thing is that this is a site of importance, I think, that needs to be preserved. But it, it op- opens the door for other things. Um, other sites that have prothonotaries, like Louisiana and South Carolina, have projects where they actually tag the birds to find out where they're going and uh or and analyze the actual feces of the birds to, to see what they're eating. And this is all sort of tied into the productivity of a wetland area. Uh by doing this kind of thing we we see that uh these kind of wetland areas are uh, are in good health uh, and very productive as far as uh, the insects and uh, small invertebrates that the uh, birds eat. They're, they're literally a canary in the coal mine. Uh, one of the ter- terms for this bird is swamp canary, but uh, the old term canary in the, in the coal mine er, refers to birds that um, the, the miners used to take into, into mines to tell them when something was going wrong. So, so a healthy environment... In which the uh, prothonotaries are thriving shows that it's shows that it's a uh, a, a system that's going going forward uh, very well.
1: Right. So if there's a healthy bird population, prothonotary, wader population, you know that that's a uh, the ecosystem is progressing maybe in the in the right direction. Also, I would guess maybe the success of this project is a blueprint uh, for maybe if, uh, projects in other states and other areas.
3: Uh, that's right. Uh, we're, we're not the only one that has a uh, nest box project. Um, I, I worked for three years at Audubon, Louisiana, and John Lafitte National Park. Uh, we we did uh, nest box checks. And um, as I said before, uh, Mississippi and before uh, um, Bluff State Park turns out to be an extremely important site for, uh, for foundry warblers in terms of their breeding. Uh, but this being a, an international species that, that migrates into South America with a long mig- migration route, uh, we need to protect every step of the way on their way from from uh, South America, Central America, back to their breeding grounds.
1: Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so let's uh, invite uh, John into our conversation this morning. Thanks for calling, John. You're on the air with us. Go ahead.
3: Good
0: morning. Um, I have a friend who lives on the edge of the Pearl River with a, a swampland in his, in his backyard, essentially. And he has a uh, or had a prothonotary warbler nesting in his mailbox right in his front doorstep. I mean, and uh, they fled <laughs> in the whole bit. Yeah. And I just wondered how unusual that is. Um, I assume you're not putting up mailboxes in uh, LaFleur's block, but real mail, real nesting boxes, but... Is that unusual for them to use a a totally man made object like a Carolina wren or something to
2: nest in? No, that's not unusual at all. I would say, in fact, the favorite nesting sites of the birds on my place, they've used them twice this year, are little, they're decorative metal. Bird houses actually they're made by Sky Thompson, who is a um a craftsman at the Mississippi Craftsman's Guild, and I uh-huh. get a new one every year from him they're really cute little things, and the birds think so too evidently, but uh, they like these because I hang them from the the ceiling and I think that makes it harder. I also have cowbirds, so they may be avoiding the cowbirds by getting in the hanging ones but and uh Tommy and Kathy Shropshire have prothonotaries nesting at their house too, and they said they use pretty much anything he has them okay. in a little cavity, yeah uh empty boxes in his garage he's had them in when when they're happy in a uh a habitat, they will find the place okay. uh the bird the nesting boxes that Charlie and the um Audubon make though with that one and a quarter inch hole keep out the predator. So their their bird nests are going to be more successful if you have a tiny little hole. And these metal ones that I use or that, that, that I put up and the birds chose to use because I also had made-to-regulation wooden boxes that they did not use. Instead, they use these decorative things. But if it's got that small hole, it um, decreases the chance of them being... Um, a,
0: taking the eggs or okay. the babies. Okay, I guess that with or, nesting in,
2: the,
0: I'm sorry.
1: Go ahead, John.
2: I'm,
0: no, I'm I'm sorry. Sorry. I guess with nesting in the entryway to the house, that was sort of a, a protection against predators. Um, and he le- he left a note for the mailman to to put the uh, mail on the table on the side table rather than in the mailbox. <laughs> so yep, it was that's a good idea. Lasting. yeah.
2: yeah. Yep, they, they're they not bothered by us, so I'm sure they're not bothered by him coming and going from his house. They, they uh, get accustomed to human beings pretty quickly. And we have a little dog that will sit right underneath the, the nest, and, you know, he the dog doesn't want to bother them, but they don't seem to be scared of him either, of her.
1: All right, uh, John, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're talking about prothonotary warblers today with our guest, bird enthusiast, and volunteer with the Jackson Audubon Society, Charlie Pfeiffer. Uh, Charlie, you mentioned conservation and that there are protected breeding areas in the U.S. and on their migration route and in their wintering grounds. Are uh, are prothonotary warblers uh, threatened or endangered?
3: Well, it's a species of conservation concern. Uh, they... They have undergone a 40 uh, percent decline since 1966, but, but that leaves 1.6 million. So you might might think, well, that, that's not too bad, but the, the the general trend is is very concerning, and uh, there's a lot of habitat protection in the uh, United States. It's not perfect. Uh, there's still demands and uh, problems with habitat destruction. But uh, an upcoming problem looming on the horizon is the fact that uh, protonetaries need to be protected along their migration route, which is Mexico, uh, Jamaica, Cuba. They fly across the Gulf of Mexico, and at night, that's the amazing thing, a tiny bird flying across the Gulf of Mexico, in total darkness, they get to the Yucatan, uh, then they the, pro- the uh, other problem is that they're concentrating in Colombia. Looks like 88 percent of the wintering uh, prothonotary warblers uh, winter in Colombia, and especially in the Magdalena River Valley. So, in order to preserve prothonotaries, we need to protect them everywhere. So, this kind of information has just recently, not too long ago, come out. And uh, so there's going to be, have to be some intensive conservation efforts in Colombia.
1: All right. I think it's uh, time for another break. Uh, when we get back, we'll continue our discussion with our guest, Charlie Pfeiffer. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, you can work in your phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be have more after this break. This is Creature Conference on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield. Our guest today is Charlie Pfeiffer, bird enthusiast and volunteer with the Jackson Audubon Society. We've been talking about the prothonotary warbler. Uh, still time uh, to work in a question or a comment. If you have a call, it's 1-877-MPB-RING. one 672 7464 uh, Charlie, a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. First, you mentioned that the uh, the pathonotaries uh, uh, mi- migrate at night, and I guess that's uh, somewhat unusual for birds. And how do they, do they have like a radar? How do they navigate in the dark like that?
3: Well, it, it's not the only only bird that uh, migrates at night. There are, there are uh, a number of species that do when they head into Central and South America. So uh, there's a lot of things that birds use when they migrate, uh, that we think they're using, uh, magnetic field, um, the stars, if, if they're migrating during the day, the sun, uh, so, so different things like that.
1: And also, we've mentioned a couple of times your work with the Jackson Audubon Society. If someone is interested in the work that the society does or wants to get involved maybe as a volunteer, uh, what can you tell them about uh, how, how to learn more?
3: So they should go to the Jackson Audubon website. Uh, we always want members. We always want uh, people to join our prothonotary team um, if they're interested. And if they go through the website, I think they can they can do that.
1: And what are some of the activities that the Audubon Society does throughout the year?
3: There are um, bird walks, especially at Lafleur's Bluff State Park. Uh, it's it's been because of the coronavirus. There's been a a kind of a damper put on that, uh, but uh, eventually that'll pick up again. Um, as a matter of fact, the coronavirus put a damper on our nest checks in April uh, where the park was closed, um, but we picked it picked it up again in May.
1: We've got some phone calls to get to, so let's return to the phone lines and invite Rick into the conversation. Rick, thanks for calling. Go ahead, please.
0: Good morning, guys. Uh, I hate to get off topic. I know you're talking about the warbler. Uh, I live in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and I live in a what people might call a gated uh, neighborhood. And one thing that we are absent of are bats. Um, and I have looked into building a bat box to hang on the side of the house, but was a little uh, discouraged by the the time that they said it may be before bats actually find the box or whatever. And this may be a dumb question, so forgive me. I know people transplant bees to different areas to pollinate crops and whatnot. Are there individuals that do the same with uh, bats to get them in an area, uh, you know, to where they might stay and feed and whatnot? And if you don't mind, I'm going to hang up and – just <laughs> answer
2: on there, okay?
1: okay? All right, Rick. Thanks, uh, uh, Libby. What do you have?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question, Rick. but we don't recommend that you move bat colonies. Um, it, it's just not a good idea. It's not very often successful, so that's not being done. In fact, that's um, it's illegal <laughs> to move a, a colony of of bats but what you can do and we did it fairly successfully is you find a place where bats are living or going in a house or in a school or anything like that and um oftentimes it's a place where people would rather they didn't go we had a colony of bats that were going into um my mother-in-law's house, and she didn't want them in the attic. We put a nest box up right by where they were entering. We excluded them from the house, and Paul actually kind of set the nest box into um, the side of the attic so that they, they were entering the, basically the same place, but then going in the box, and they inhabited that box for a number of years, and then they, the colony got big enough that they got back in the house, and uh, we had problems with them, but they they went into the bird box willingly when it, I mean, into the bat box willingly when it was very close to the, the colony that they had established themselves. So I would say if you're really interested in helping bats somewhere, find a place where there are bats, they're not necessarily wanted where they are, and see if you can persuade them into a box that'll be better for the humans that are right there, and it'll end up being better for the bats. I know that doesn't help attract them to your land, and if anybody that's a listener has a, a good success story of just putting a box up and attracting bats, I've seen a couple of places where that's happened, but again, it's it's been places where people already knew that bats were flying around uh, so uh, I've not heard anybody that had a lot of luck with just putting up a bird uh, I mean just a bat I keep calling them birds bat a bat box and um, attracting them very quickly and that's that's what you're hearing I think is that it takes a few years usually before a colony will find a box and decide they want to use it so I hope that answered the question
1: all right uh, thanks Libby so we've got uh, one final call of the hour and it's Roger and Florence. Go ahead, Roger, you're on the air.
2: Well, good morning. Thanks
5: again to all of you. And, Charlie, i got a question for you to put you on the spot, speak for yourself or the Audubon Society. I'm a great fan of the society. I, I am worried about, I think, that the business interests and the private interests and land are going to prevail, and we're probably going to flood Mays Lake and ruin a whole lot of the, uh, the area of the flora. Uh, of the park and ruin a lot of of uh, habitat. What is Audubon's position on that, or or not officially if necessary? But would you comment on that, please? Because the population around here needs to consider that and not just worry about the uh, so-called advantages of damming up the Pearl and and flooding that beautiful area. I'm I'm gonna. I'm just going to hang up and listen. My heart's broken over the prospects, but uh, I don't want to be discouraged. And let's have another voice if you have one on the subject. Thank you.
3: Uh, yeah, J- Jackson Audubon's uh, position is in opposition, opposition to one lake, a- and mine as well. Uh, I, I think I think the chances to damage the park are there. Um, so, so we we hope that it can be defeated. Um, but that, that, that is where we stand. We, we are in opposition, opposition to
1: One life. And I would uh, say anyone that's uh, listening and concerned about that, you know, one way that you can have your voice heard is to uh, let your local officials, your elected officials know uh, your thoughts on, on an issue like that. So, uh, just a couple of minutes, or uh, half a minute or so left, time for me to remind you that, you know, if you are out and about and see some sort of creature, bird, or other creature that you uh, need identifying, we always can give you uh, a hand if you send us an email, but if you could, always try to snap a photo, uh, and that helps out our identification process, but between uh, Dr. Major and Libby and the guests that we have, usually we're able to give you a pretty good idea of what you see when you're out and about, but if you got your smartphone with you and, and snap. A picture uh, that would certainly be a big help so that's going to wrap us up for today creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funding provided in part by listeners like you to hear the show today's show or previous show you can go to mpbonline.org creature comforts our show is produced by java chapman and our call screener today was liz gill for libby hartfield and uh, charlie pfeiffer i'm kevin farrell Inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference heard only on MPB Think Radio.